a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, I welcome you to the program. Hope you're ready to revel in wrong think. It's as much fun as it sounds. <laughs> and who knows, we might just learn a thing or two by, uh, by the end of today's show. Our program is brought to you every weekday, Monday through Friday, by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, by Monticello College, by Pure Light, the incredible new LED light bulbs, which actually kill odors and germs and, and pathogens, and also by HSLAmmo.com. Well, welcome to the show. We've got a lot going on here. There is so much taking place, uh, you know, in, in every arena of life that uh, it's, it's almost hard to know where to start. But I'm going to just dive in here and, uh, and we'll, we'll see where it takes us. We're going to talk a little bit today about how you know you're dealing with an aristocracy. Now, for some people, an aristocracy doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really set off any alarms. Yeah, what's the big deal? Some people are hoity-toity, some of them aren't. But there's, there's kind of a sinister side to this. And I think to fully understand, what was the American founding generation able to do? They were able to create a system of governance that, uh, that essentially dismantled that feudal system of aristocracy, which had ruled so much of Europe, from which you know they, they came, um, and created a system where there was a much more equal footing. You know, the, the rule of law rather than the rule of men. And I remember an event here a few years ago, this was in my home state of Utah, where there was some kind of a, some kind of a big shindig taking place up near the state capitol. And people were trying to find parking spaces. Apparently there was, uh, it was a political get-together of some kind, and people were having trouble finding parking. Well, Salt Lake City Parking Enforcement was out in force, and they wrote a record number of tickets to people who were attending this, this gathering. I think it was a party, actually, that they were attending. And, and the kicker was, there were a number of legislators and other hoity to- uh, not hoity toys, and I'm sorry, that's, that's rude. There are a number of other mucky mucks, there we go, <laughs> much better, who had, uh, had also been in attendance at this party. They got parking tickets as well. But the thing was, when they complained about it, hey, we got these parking tickets, you know what the Salt Lake Police Department did? They said, well, you know, if you're, if you're one of the legislators or you're one of their staff, just bring us the ticket and we'll go ahead and dismiss it, which they did. I mean, that's pretty nice, right? Okay, what about the people who weren't? Nope. They had to pay their parking tickets. And that's how you know you're dealing with an aristocracy. There's one set of laws for the little people, and there's another set of rules for those who are in power. Now, we see that. I mean, we see that a lot. But probably the most blatant example of of seeing this is uh, what we saw in the uh, Biden administration here just in the last few days, where they fired staffers over smoking pot or having used marijuana but let uh, the vice president, Kamala Harris, get away with it. Brad Palumbo has an excellent piece on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. And this is, this is worth considering. 
He says, honesty is always the best policy. That is, unless you work in a low-level federal job for the Biden administration. In that case, it might get you demoted or fired. And here's what he's talking about. Dozens of White House staffers have been suspended, asked to you to resign, rather, or placed in remote work programs due to past marijuana use. That's according to the Daily Beast in an exclusive report. Now, this policy has affected staffers whose marijuana use was exclusive to one of the 14 states and the District of Columbia where cannabis is perfectly legal. Sources familiar with the matter say a number of young staffers were either put on probation or canned because they revealed past marijuana use in an official document they filled out as part of the lengthy background check for a position in the Biden White House. The report continues, would-be staffers in the Biden administration whose dream jobs were derailed by an opaque system now feel that their own truthfulness has been used against them. Now, I understand, for some people, this is going to bring little sympathy. Well, you know, they should have thought of that before they started token up. Okay, fair enough. But here's the really crazy part about it. Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg, both officials within the Biden administration, They don't face any consequences, and they have very openly admitted to using marijuana. So Brad Palumbo says this purge seems seriously hypocritical in light of the past statements from top administration officials. Low-level staffers are getting the axe when they honestly answered employment forms. But top administration officials like Vice President Kamala Harris and Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg have publicly bragged about past marijuana usage, which likely happened when it was still illegal, but they face no repercussions. Harris laughed when she admitted in a 2019 interview at The Breakfast Club that she smoked weed in college despite having worked to imprison drug users as California's Attorney General and having opposed marijuana legalization until very recently. Half my family's from Jamaica, she said. Are you kidding me? And I did inhale, she added with a laugh. I just broke news. Now, similarly, Buttigieg hasn't shied away from publicly discussing his past drug use during his 2020 presidential campaign, wherein he did support legalization. Buttigieg admitted that he had used marijuana a handful of times a long time ago. Yet the vice president and a top cabinet official will not lose their jobs or face demotion or even be reassigned as a result of their past drug use. Palumbo says if the Biden administration believes that past marijuana use is disqualifying for low-level positions in the federal government, surely it must be considered disqualifying for high-ranking cabinet members and the woman a heartbeat away from becoming president. Brad Palumbo says that Biden administration's dank marijuana policy hypocrisy, rather, is an emblematic of a broader trend that always plagues drug criminalization, wherein elites get away with the same behavior that earns disadvantaged people harsh punishments. Whenever the government criminalizes widespread victimless private behavior, vices would be another way to put it, it's impossible to consistently and fully enforce its mandates. So it has to decide which cases to pursue and which to overlook. And this discretion in the wielding of vast concentrated power inevitably results in favoritism and corruption, inevitably redounding to the benefit of the well-off and the well-connected. And the result? Well, African Americans and white people smoke marijuana at similar rates, but African Americans are nearly four times more likely to be arrested for it. Low-income Americans have historically been much more likely to get caught up in the war on drugs as well. 
And now low-level marijuana users are being purged from the federal government, while elites like Vice President Harris at the top get away with doing the same thing and publicly bragging about it. This hypocrisy is what's truly disqualifying, says Brad Palumbo. Now look, this may not be the dog you have in a fight. Maybe you don't really care about uh, you know drug policy or cannabis legalization or anything like that. But would it be wrong to suggest that this, this mentality of one set of rules for you and another set for us doesn't spill over into a lot of other areas as well? I'm thinking in terms of taxes, in terms of um, financial fraud or corruption. And, and, you know, not to paint with too broad of a brush, but how many people go into politics at the federal level with a modest, you know, uh, net worth, but they come out millionaires many times over? because of their access to, uh, you know, insider uh, trading information that they know of policies, they know of regulations, things that are coming along, they're going to benefit one business or another. And I mean, you can take this as many directions as you want. How many people were heavily invested in vaccines prior to the pandemic? That's not to say it's a big conspiracy. That's just to say how many people were in a position to know that something was coming and decided to jump on it. How people? How many people knew when to sell certain stocks? Because it was a safe bet that they were going to tank due to some federal regulation. Yeah, it 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 ticks me off too. It it, it bothers me that that such things can happen. And not that not that it's not a part of human nature. It is. You know, this is this is people are always looking for a way to you know get a little bit more. You know, to take advantage of of whatever power they have at their disposal. I think what's disturbing, though, is it's becoming the trend, not only that this is normal for those who hold elected office, but the the coverage that is provided for them by members of the press who used to be watchdogs. And, you know, they definitely were during the during Trump's years in in power. But uh, somehow they're very supportive of this and they don't report on it now. And it's, well, you know, it's really no big deal. This is just the way things are supposed to be. Something doesn't smell right. So. And in some way, figuratively or perhaps literally, the trash really should probably be taken out. The diaper should be changed. But that starts with awareness. <laughs> so here's someone saying, hmm, do you smell that? <laughs> we got a problem here. All right, we got to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about gender inequality, particularly as it applies to military service and especially as it applies to the draft. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just want to say a few kind words here about uh, Pure Light, pure-light.com. These are amazing light bulbs that have the ability to do what a $1,000 air purifying machine will do. And I can't explain the technology to you. I can tell you this. If you go to the link I provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, they have all kinds of cool resources on their website, pure-light.com. And they can tell you all about how these, these light bulbs eliminate odors. They can eliminate the smell. You, you burned the pizza in the oven and, you know, the house stinks. 
these light bulbs help to eliminate those odors. They they do uh, they do a marvelous job of killing off pathogens, germs, and viruses and the like. Powerful, powerful stuff, and a lot more affordable than the big expensive air purification machines. So I'm going to just plant that little seed of curiosity, tell you, you can check it out. There's a link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com, and I think you're going to like what you find. So that said, let's jump in here, talk about this obsession with so-called gender inequality. I mean, I saw a memory pop up on Facebook just last week, and, you know, it was tongue-in-cheek. I think it it may have been something from the Babylon Bee, but it was lamenting how with the lockdowns that had just been put in place, women were losing just 79 cents for every dollar that men were losing, you know, in lost wages. And I was like, all right, (laughs) let's uh, let's take that a slightly funnier direction. But one of the places where we've started to see a lot of discussion about this is uh, military service. In fact, Tucker Carlson, I mean, he was under attack from you know, legit members of the armed forces, at least, you know, the, the upper echelons of the armed forces, for questioning, you know, some of the policies. Yes, the uh, expectant mother flight suits and things like this. And, you know, this, I don't want to start the, the battle of the sexes here, but... That gender inequality obsession is, is spilling over into so many areas. And one of the things that, uh, that I guess is really uh, starting to rear its head is the idea that, you know, draft registration is inv- is, involves unequal treatment of men and women. Well, Carrie McDonald, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, has a marvelous article on this. And I love her conclusion, which is gender inequality isn't the problem with the draft. She says, I became a libertarian in part, or in large part, because of my parents' opposition to the Vietnam War. I grew up hearing about the tumultuous time of the late 1960s as my father was finishing college and was sure he would be drafted into the war, as were many of his friends. She says, my newlywed parents thought about fleeing to Canada to avoid the draft and the senseless war that killed over 58,000 Americans and wounded 150,000 others. Yearning for some control over his destiny, my father applied to and was accepted into Officer Candidate School, or OCS, serving in the Navy during Vietnam. Now, she says, I was raised with a strong respect for American troops and appreciation for national defense, along with a deep anti-war inclination and utter dismay at the military draft. Military conscription, or forced military service, existed at various points from our country's founding until 1973, when the U.S. moved to an all-volunteer army in the shadow of the unpopular Vietnam War. From 1940 until 1973, American men were routinely drafted to serve in the armed forces in both peacetime and during conflicts to fill roles that were not sufficiently staffed by volunteer soldiers. Contingent conscription conscription continues to exist today through mandatory draft registration. She says, currently all American men are required to register for the draft through the selective service system when they turn 18 and could be forced into military service if the draft was activated. And she says, as a mom with young sons, I shudder at this prospect. Lawyers with the American Civil Liberties Union have filed a petition asking the Supreme Court to rule the current military draft registration unconstitutional. Want to hear their reasoning? It's because it requires only men to register, not women. And Carrie McDonald says, as a mom with young daughters, I shudder at this prospect. While draft registration does involve unequal treatment of men and women, and women have been ably serving in the military for years, including in full combat, 
the larger issue is Selective Service Registration itself. Current draft registration may be unconstitutional, but it shouldn't exist at all. Now, here's where she's coming from. She says, forcing citizens into any kind of non-voluntary work or action is antithetical to the principles of a free society. Some contend that conscription is necessary to defend those principles if there were not enough volunteers to serve in a wartime effort. But is slavery ever justifiable? Who decides? If there are not enough soldiers to willingly fight a war, should the war be fought? Now, what's interesting is you'll get some interesting reactions from people on the right. I remember Alan Keyes. Actually, I had a chance to interview him a few years ago. And that was one of the things that that was kind of a sticking point with me. I, I asked him, so I understand you are very supportive of the draft. How does the draft not equal slavery in that it's it's forcing people into involuntary servitude? And his response at the time was, he said, well, that's the price of living in a free country. Now, I didn't press him on that because, frankly, I was kind of goo-goo over the fact I was getting the chance to interview Alan Keyes, but I was disappointed nonetheless because that didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. The price of living in a free country is that uh, at some point you may be, you know, uh, put into slavery, military slavery. (laughs) I'm like, I don't get it. I don't get it. Nobel Prize-winning economist Milton Friedman was one of the key figures who succeeded in persuading the U.S. to move to an all-volunteer army back in 1973, arguing against military conscription. Kerry MacDonald writes, Friedman wrote that any system involving compulsion is basically inconsistent with a free society. And he went on to argue that continued use of compulsion is undesirable and unnecessary. We can and should man our armed forces with volunteers. So in place of conscription, Friedman advocated for a voluntary military guided by free market ideas. The appropriate free market arrangement is volunteer military forces, which is to say, hiring young men to serve. Friedman wrote in his book, Capitalism and Freedom, there is no justification for not paying whatever price is necessary to attract the required number of men. Present arrangements are inequitable and arbitrary, seriously interfere with the freedom of young men to shape their lives, and probably are even more costly than the market alternative. Now, Friedman's advocacy against conscription came to a climax in testimony with Army Chief of Staff General William Westmoreland. The general disagreed with Friedman by claiming that the economist's free market approach would be akin to leading an army of mercenaries. Friedman replied, General, would you rather command an army of slaves? And while the U.S. moved to an all-volunteer military nearly half a century ago, draft registration remains a policy of government coercion with the ongoing specter of a reinstated draft. The Supreme Court petition arguing that the current male-only draft registration is unconstitutional could be an opportunity to eliminate this coercive measure altogether. Alternatively, it could lead to heightened coercion by mandating that men, that women as well as men now register for the draft at age 18 or by replacing draft registration with mandatory national service for all young Americans. Should the court declare the men-only regulation requirement unconstitutional, Congress has considerable latitude to decide how to respond. This is what the ACLU's petition to the Supreme Court says, which will soon decide whether or not to hear the challenge. The petition says it could require everyone between the ages of 18 and 26, regardless of sex, to register. It could rescind the registration retirement entirely, or it could adopt a new approach altogether, such as replacing selective service with the more expansive national service requirement. 
Now, Kerry McDonald says, instead of a more equitable application of government coercion, we should remove the coercion altogether. And she's right, by the way. Eliminating mandatory draft registration and relying on a volunteer military, even in wartime, would lead us to more fully embody the cherished principles of a free society and more willingly defend that freedom if attacked. Which answers one of the concerns that I know some have brought up. Well, what if we need people? What if there's a war coming and we need to get people and people aren't signing up? Well, um, let me ask you this. (laughs) Do the people agree that that war is necessary? Because maybe if they don't, it's proper that they withhold their consent. Just a suggestion. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out to uh, Monticello College. If you go to MonticelloCollege.org, and yes, there's a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, you will learn about an education for our time, <clears throat> which, uh, which means an education to, to build men and women who are courageous, virtuous, leadership-oriented people. Not in the sense that they're building a monument to themselves, but to the sense that they are, are building the people and the society around them. It's a little-known thing called public virtue. We don't hear much talk about it. We don't see it hardly ever, in terms of those people who actually work within the public sector. But it's a very worthwhile thought. And if you want to know more, just click on the link in the show notes under sponsors from Monticello College. Got a couple of different articles here that I wanted to touch on briefly. Um, advertising. See, I just did an advertisement for you. That's, uh, that's, uh, it's, it's something that I know can easily be equated with propaganda. And I can't argue and say, well, it's really not propaganda. Sometimes it is. And there's a lot of it directed at us on a daily basis. But some people have concluded that, well, you know, online advertising in particular just has reduced consumers to puppets on a string. And while that may sound like, oh, that's not a good thing, Sheldon Richmond has an excellent piece about this that says, you know, that, that bias against advertising is likely misplaced. He says, people who dislike markets harbor a special animosity toward advertising as cynically controlling. And that's not new. In the mid-20th century, John Kenneth Galbraith and other market opponents condemned advertising as business's way to manipulate people into buying things they had no real need for and actually didn't want. To hear them tell it, the consumer's not an agent, but a puppet, with advertisers as the puppet masters. Now, Sheldon Richmond says this position was and is wrong. Galbraith and his colleagues, he says, I suspect, didn't think they were helpless buyers. And it was debunked by sensible people, including Israel Kirzner, the great economist of the Austrian school and student of Ludwig von Mises. <clears throat> After all, advertising is information about products, including products people may be unaware of but would be happy to learn about. Sure, ads try to be attention-grabbing, but so What? People are busy and information's all around. So the value of advertising is obvious. But he says this point is not undercut by the undoubted fact that manufacturers present their products in the best light possible. Part of growing up is acquiring a degree of skepticism about the claims made in advertisements. 
As long as the government doesn't impede competition by blocking entry into markets, and as long as consumers have recourse for actual fraud, consumers can be reasonably protected from false information. So he says the value of advertising thus stands untouched. The claim that ads can easily manipulate consumers is refuted by history and everyday events. If it were true, no business that advertised would fail. But businesses fail every day. The market antagonists who attacked advertising in the 50s and 60s apparently missed the story of the Ford Edsel, a notorious example of a heavily advertised product from a major company that still flopped spectacularly. Alas, he says, we're wrong. We're usually wrong to assume that when a proposition is thoroughly debunked, it disappears and is never spoken of again. Yeah, that would be nice, but in fact, advocates of freedom well know that hoary falsehoods must be refuted over and over for each new generation, if not more often than that. So the attack on advertising is still with us. And he says anyone who's seen the Netflix video, The Social Dilemma, will understand this. The program is an attack on all the social media platforms for, among other things, cynically delivering helpless customers to businesses that want to sell them things. The program goes so far as to feature a retired Harvard Business School professor who said that Facebook, et al., are simply markets that trade human futures. Now, that sounds horrible, of course, but what she could have meant is anyone's guess. In a real futures market, people buy and sell options to engage in future transactions involving commodities at prices set in the present. Now, the parties certainly do not buy people, and neither do advertisers on Twitter and other platforms. So what do they do then? Well, they pay the platform for the opportunity to place their product messages before potential buyers. See, stated that way, the process sounds rather benign, and that's because it is. It should also seem commonplace because it is. This is how print and broadcast media have long made money. Is a newspaper less of a news medium because it sells car dealers and funeral homes space in which they can pitch their products and services to readers? Are radio and television stations not really entertainment and news media because they sell time to businesses to make pitches to listeners and viewers? Is something wrong with commercial billboards? Are potential consumers merely helpless pawns of the advertisers? The answer is, of course not. Broadcast advertising was an ingenious solution to a vexing free rider problem. With old-style broadcast, a station or network could not charge consumers for its programs. The signal was transmitted, and anyone with a receiver could enjoy the programs. The people were able to be free riders, so as a business model, the drawbacks were substantial. Entirely viewer-supported programming might work in some circumstances. But Sheldon Richmond says, luckily, some bright entrepreneur hit on the idea of selling advertising time to soap and soup companies. In return, the companies got the opportunity to pitch their wares to potential customers. But he says, notice that buying time did not guarantee that anyone would watch or listen to commercials. Many people instead broke for the kitchen or the bathroom. Even if they stayed in their seats, they didn't guarantee, that didn't guarantee that they would buy what was being offered. But they might, and advertisers were willing to pay for that chance. He says, consumers are not puppets. They're human agents with preferences and interests and they can take an active stance toward advertising as they choose. Now, all of this applies to social media. Even if advertisers have access to all the data that participants choose to give away through their online activities, it's no assurance that they'll click on ads or that they'll buy the products even if they do click on ads. 
In fact, it was pointed out that in 2017, only 0.9% of Facebook ads were clicked on. And he says, I'd like to know what percentage of clickers actually bought something. That hardly supports the claim that the social media are diabolical platforms for manipulating helpless people on behalf of ruthless sellers. So in conclusion, he says, so much for the hysterical insistence that Facebook et al., collect so much data on their participants that they can predict with great precision any individual's behavior and thus guarantee success to their advertisers. Sheldon Richmond says this doesn't mean that the social media are beyond all criticism. One can be rightly irritated by their condescension toward participants as when they suppress suppress controversial links and other objectionable features. But he says among their least objectionable features is they sell businesses the opportunity to pitch their products to us. Kind of an interesting slant. I I hadn't really thought much about it, but yeah, like you, I'm always a little bit surprised and just a tiny bit creeped out every time that something that I have been mentioning in conversation with a friend or family pops up within my Facebook feed. It is a little bit uncanny, and it kind of gives you the impression, my gosh, there really are ears everywhere. <laughs> And then, by the way, there's that, that can actually be turned, you know, to, to a good end. If uh, your significant other is, you know, hanging out uh, with their, their portable device, you know, their iPad or whatever, you can always just stand by them or when they're not, when they're not near their computer, just say aloud the things you really want for your birthday or for, for Christmas or whatever and watch those ads pop up in their, uh, you know, their social media feeds. Something to think about. The idea, too, that, that consumers are just, you know, these, these poor, pathetic little souls that are dancing at the end of a string. They're, they're agents to be acted upon rather than agents for themselves. That is what's going to take us into our next little segment here when we talk a little bit about how not to be owned. Now, the word owned has taken on kind of a, a different meaning you know, a lot of people spend time on social media. Hey, why do you spend time on Facebook? Because I'm there owning the libtards, man. Or I'm owning these uh, knuckle-dragging, you know, conservatives and the Trumpers. And so it's it's become a way of expressing, you know, I'm, I'm delivering verbal beatdowns or I'm arguing or doing my my best to uh, to be the better, you know, argumentative proponent of some policy. I owned you. But when it comes to ownership, you know, I take a pretty, I take a pretty serious view because uh, I think this is <clears throat> a key part of self-determination. And you cannot really have self-determination without the concept of self-ownership. And the beauty of this is uh, there, are, there are people who got this and understood this. Leonard Reed, the guy who founded the Foundation for Economic Education, was absolutely brilliant. And if you haven't read any of his works, then I would suggest you trip on over to fee.org, F-E-E.org, and see for yourself what to, what he has to offer. They have they have a lot of great material from him. When we come back, I'm going to share with you a commentary from Gary Gallas, which actually involves a lot of commentary from Leonard Reed. He's got a great chapter from his 1974 book, Having My Way, which explains the key to preserving self-ownership. If, like me, you're serious about your freedom, this is one you won't want to miss. We'll be back in just a moment. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. All right, I'm excited to share this one with you. This is uh, an article from Gary M. Gallus on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. If you have not subscribed to get their daily emails, you are missing out on a treasure trove of great information that will better help you understand the world around us. And and I love that it's delivered in a decidedly nonpartisan fashion. This is not bumper sticker slogans. This is not red versus blue tug of war. This is some great analysis and, and free market perspectives. And I think you'll you'll find that they have a lot to offer. Uh, Brad Palumbo, who's the editor of uh, their, their uh, daily email and newsletter that goes out, does just a bang-up job. And I, and I hope you'll subscribe for it. It's not going to cost you anything, and it will provide you with some truly, truly great uh, reading material. Gary Gallus says, This March marks the 75th anniversary of the Foundation of Economic Education. And because FEE has done yeoman work in defense of people's rights and liberty for that entire time, starting when those prospects were bleak, that's also a milestone for the advancement of society. Given that Leonard Reed was FEE's founder and guiding light, it's worth reminding ourselves of his commitment to those principles. Now, of course, Reed produced a mountain of material on rights and liberty, so finding his best words on those topics can be like finding a needle in a haystack. In fact, Gary Gallus' book, my, his book, Apostle of Peace, was one such effort, but he says, I wanted to find an appropriate article that I didn't include there. And he says, and I found a good candidate, How Not to Be Owned. Chapter 25 in his Having My Way, published in 1974. Not only does its title connect our rights and liberty intimately, but that connection is worth revisiting. And, and here, Gallus shares some of the highlights from Leonard Reed's masterful piece. So this is what Leonard Reed had to say. He asks, who is to control the fruits of your labor, you or others? Private ownership is the very heart of the free society, but throughout the ages, the plunderers have had it by a mile. Private ownership comes out in last place. The commandment, thou shalt not steal, presupposes private ownership. Why? Well, how, could, how possibly could anything be stolen if it were not first owned? Here we have a stress on the importance of private ownership, so strong that a violation was deemed a religious offense. Millions hold private ownership as a sacred right for themselves, but fail to realize that unless this precise right is extended to everyone else, it is no right at all, a mere fiction. Leonard Reed said, When each citizen proclaims ownership of his earnings and fails to insist upon a similar ownership on the part of everyone else, the outcome has to be all citizens against one. For a person who's not permitted to own what he has earned is in fact owned by a master. He asks, what queer notions of right and wrong, each respecting his own property, but not that of the other person? But really, what is the difference between a political collective backed by a constabulary and a man's passion to enslave backed by a lash? There's no less compulsion in one case than in the other. Leonard Reed said, it's as simple as this. If a man has a right to his life to own himself, it logically follows that he has a right to sustain his life, the sustenance of life being the fruits of one's own labor. 
Thus, to the extent that one's sustenance is taken, to that extent is one owned instead of owning himself. So where lies the remedy? What has to happen before individuals will concede to others precisely the same right to ownership as they seek for themselves? Observe the golden rule. Yes, that is the answer, all right. But in the same sense that thou shalt not steal is the answer. He says, here's the realization we must come to. The golden rule and the commandment are but labels for ideal and hoped-for relationships. In a dictocratic society, they are unattainable pipe dreams. In a free society, they automatically exist. These ideal relationships grow toward reality only to the extent that the free society approaches reality. Freedom and private ownership, as well as an observation of the golden rule, rise or fall in unison. They are inseparably linked. And Leonard Reed said, once this is understood, it becomes clear why thou shalt not steal has so little practical meaning today. The commandment against theft is no more than a mystical aspiration in a dictocratic situation and cannot be otherwise. Whenever the right to the fruits of one's own labor is gaining acceptance and respect, understanding of the free society is likewise gaining. When state welfareism and government control is on the rampage, as in the USA today, Leaders wave aside the free society as a viable way of life. Their philosophy, though never in these realistic terms, is that you and I shall not be permitted to own. We are to be owned. The coercive control of people's lives, including the fruits of their labor, falls or rises precisely as the practice of freedom increases or wanes, which is to say as authoritarianism relaxes or tightens its grip. Freedom is the right of anyone to do anything so long as it is peaceful. I love that definition. Government is freedom's peacekeeping agency. Its role is limited to codifying and prohibiting all unpeaceful or destructive activities. Given this freedom arrangement, each citizen is free to produce anything he pleases, to exchange on mutually agreeable terms with whomever he pleases, to do as he chooses with what is his own, and without trespass against others. We have in this ideal situation only willing exchanges, of whether it's of goods or services. Each citizen gains in his own judgment, or he would not make the exchanges. Each owns. No one is owned. There's neither thievery nor enslavement. Both are impossible. Each is behaving toward others as he would have them behave toward him. In a word, the golden rule is observed as freedom is practiced. Now, here's the, here's the cool part, because you're probably asking yourself, how do I make it all work? How to own rather than be owned, asks Leonard Reed. His answer is, learn the freedom philosophy and how to live by it. Man, we could spend some more time on that. Going back to Gary Gallas, he says, Leonard Reed saw how rare freedom was in human history and recognized America as the great outlier produced from that long, often dismal track record until our founding. He also saw our regression from the ideas of our founding that has long since been taking place. Both led him to defend our rights and liberty against encroachment and advance them wherever possible. He and Fee, which was founded for that purpose, deserve our gratitude. The most appropriate response is to understand the importance of those ideas well enough to put them into practice. 
By the way, if you want to take that one step further, and there's, there is a link to this article, by the way, in the, in the show notes, there's another great article that I'll have linked from Ryan McMacken from the uh, Von Mises Institute. Decentralization is a step toward self-determination. Just a couple of quick excerpts here. Um, Lou Rockwell, the publisher of the website, lewrockwell.com, lewrockwell.com, building on Murray Rothbard's decentralist views, talked about eminent domain, talked about how it's bad, of course, but faraway governments ought not be in the business of meddling in local affairs to prevent it. So specifically, he talks about the Kelo decision, which, if you remember, was a huge one which took a a woman's property for the sake of uh, creating a shopping center or something that was supposedly going to benefit, you know, the tax base of, of her community. It never happened. They took her property under eminent domain, but it, it never it never materialized into the public good. So a taking took place and little else. So in an article titled, What We Mean by Decentralization, Rockwell said the Kelo decision in which the Supreme Court refused to intervene in the case of a local government taking of private property touched off a huge debate among libertarians on the, pro- on the question of decentralization. And the most common perspective was that the decision was a disaster because it gave permission to local governments to steal land. Libertarians are against stealing land, and so therefore must oppose the court decision. And yet, he says, stealing isn't the only thing libertarians are against. We're also opposed to top-down political control over wide geographic regions, even when they're instituted in the name of liberty. Now, there's much more to this article, but the idea is, look, uniformity isn't nearly the virtue that some make it out to be. And, And uniformity is certainly not the hallmark of a free society. So you got to be careful when you're asking, you know, higher uh, government, higher levels of government to protect your rights, especially if they want to start imposing one-size-fits-all solutions. Ryan McMacken gives this uh, very thorough treatment, and again, this is an article which is published at lewrockwell.com. I have thoughtfully chosen to include it in the show notes because I'd like you to have access to it and, uh, you know, check it out for yourself. Do you want to see a greater measure of freedom in your life? Do you want to, to, to live with more of your own self-determination? Find ways to break away from the centralization of power. Decentralize power at all levels in your life. And you'll see it start to come together. Thanks again for joining us. Please check out the show notes, subscribe to the podcast, and consider becoming a regular donor. This is The Brian Hyde Show.